0: hey everybody this is butch patrick and oh you're over there oh you're here doesn't matter wherever
1: you are you're listening to the walter paisley movie house welcome to the walter paisley movie house where we celebrate the little engines that could not coming to you from milwaukee manor studios i'm here with my engineer jason harris our music was come, was created by jonathan Harmon, and i'm your host dylan Burke. Today's episode is brought to you by Rowdy Abilene Frisbee, fun for all ages. After just one toss of Rowdy Frisbee, you'll say, this is for the Molokai Cops. Today's guest is an independent producer, director, writer, and actor who has made 14 completely independent movies under his Paramount Studios banner, which he founded at age 13. Beginning in high school, where he made Super 8 movies with his friends, he eventually went on to Hollywood, where he made Super 8 movies with his friends. From James Bond parodies, to horror comedies, to sex romps, to religious satires, his low-budget films have set the standard for what could be accomplished with a few bucks, good friends, and a lot of good spot. His second feature film, A Polish Vampire in Burbank, was made for $2,500 and went on to make over $1 million in video and cable TV sales. It spawned the spin-off feature 1988's Curse of the Queer Wolf, and both are considered Hall of Fame cult, cult classics, according to me. His work has featured some of the biggest and littlest names in the world of cult cinema, including Monique Parent, Jerry Rector, Laurie Sutton, Eddie Beazin, Kind of, Kitten Dodd, John McCafferty, Dino, Deborah Lamb, Esther Elise, Paul Bennell, Katina Garner, Mariah Grant, Jim Hanks, Buddy Friedman, Michael R. Thomas, Jen Rowan, Ashley Ray, Rick Popko, Judy Zanuda, Branscombe Richmond, and cult legends, Forrest J. Ackerman, Conrad Brooks, and Richard Freakin' Harrison, y'all. His latest movie, The deceased Won't Persist, will be out next month, and I for one cannot wait. Please welcome the man who was almost kicked out of high school for making James Bond parody starring his friends, low-budget icon, Mark Vero. How are you, Mark? Hey.
0: Shabby,
1: <laughs> well i obviously we're fans here so we appreciate people who make movies for making movies so I'm just curious what was the last
0: name you mentioned
1: so Herod? richard harrison shows it, it, he is credited with being one of the zombies in um sorry nudist colony of the dead yeah he was, he wow. was credited yeah. with that I don't know if it's true or not, but since I saw it, I, don't I had either. to say it, because yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> the guy yeah. from Ninja Terminator possibly being in that, I had to, I had to say. Yes, it's possible, <laughs> entirely possible. I will say the internet has proven me wrong many times. So, uh, <laughs> We had Fred, Fred Olin Ray on, and, and he let me know that 90% of what I said he'd done was bullshit. So. Ah,
0: okay, well, stay alert here.
1: So I've, um, I um wanted to talk a little bit. Let's let's go back. So you you were a movie kid. You were really into movies as a kid. Uh, I heard you say in an interview that you watched Diamonds Forever in the theater twenty six times.
0: Uh, probably more. <laughs> or less. Yeah, I was a big uh, I was a big James Bond fan back in the days when Bond was handsome, and I uh, was really uh, yeah I was really into into the Bond movies. So I. I think uh, it cost about 75 cents to get into a movie, but I didn't have enough to keep going back and back and back. So sometimes I would just uh, stand by the emergency exit and just listen to it a couple of times. And I made friends with the projectionist up in one of the theaters. So, so yeah, I would say it's easily in the 20s. Maybe I've seen it more.
1: Wow. And yeah. so that was, this was in Ithaca. As you were as You grew up in Ithaca, New York. Ithaca, New York, yeah. What was your hometown theater there?
0: We had four theaters, uh, the State, the Strand, the Ithaca, and one other. And uh, when Diamonds Are Forever showed up, it stayed forever. I mean, it was there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And usually by the time Ithaca would get a movie, it had probably been out for a month or two in the major cities. And uh, But yeah, we just had four theaters. Each one only had you know one movie. There were no multiplexes or anything like that. Yeah. And it wasn't a lot to choose from back in those days. One was actually turned into a porno theater, as I recall.
1: Yeah, that <laughs> that was kind of a theme throughout the United States as things yeah. advanced. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so those were, I'm sure, did they just have the single screen or were some of them like the two screeners? Yeah. No, they were, there all were single, single screens.
0: screens. Yeah.
1: Movies would just run for weeks and weeks and weeks at those times. I
0: much, know, Yeah. On the yeah. average, you know, usually a movie would play for a week and then go. But if it was something big, like a Bond movie, you know, you'd it it would stick around for a while. I think Diamonds Are Forever stayed there for like seven or eight weeks, which was wow. unheard of back then. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. So what, what, what attracted you to James Bond? What was it about James Bond that you dug?
0: You know, uh, as a kid, he was the iconic figure of machismo. Uh, basically everything we learned about being manly men, we learned from James Bond. So, uh, you know, don't forget this was in the sixties, late sixties, early seventies. So it was, he was just the, you know, the Indiana Jones of our time where, you know, somebody that you could look to and say, that guy was just real cool. And then I remember when, uh, when Connery quit, it was like devastating. I didn't know how I was going to get through life. And then, uh, you know, then they put Roger Moore in there, which, wasn't a big fan of him, but I, I ultimately began to accept him in the role. Mm-hmm. But um, but then when Daniel Craig got the part, I turned in my membership card. I just said, yeah. he's not Bond for me. He's Bond's driver, you know. I mean, I just <laughs> didn't get it. But so anyway, being a Bond fan, uh, when I started making some short films, I would make a couple of James Bond related parodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, started doing a couple of them in upstate New York, and then. When I moved out to California, I started doing. I, I did another one out here, you know, uh, using John McCafferty, who was a tour guide at Universal Studios, as I was yeah. when I met him, and we just started making these, uh, you know, small films again.
1: Mm-hmm. So you started shooting on Super 8 in high school, and that's a format you kind of stuck with for as you came out to Hollywood. So. With that, as a kid, you've got your Super 8 camera and you're making those. Um, I got to play with those when I was a kid too. Did you have the little editing bay with the tape? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 The device there and
0: you used to uh, splice the little pieces of film together that were no bigger than your fingernail. And yeah, it was uh, it was something. And then when, when I came out here and I'd been out here in California for about five years and hadn't really done anything, that's when I decided to just go back to making Super 8 films, because it was really the cheapest way you could make a film back in those days. And, um, you know, and, and relatively speaking, I think it was like $5 for a cartridge, give um, you two or $3 to process it. And you'd really have to be very careful how you shot, because you couldn't really, like today you could shoot forever on, on digital, but back then you really had to kind of plan out your shots because you didn't want to waste much film if you can help it. I think, uh, you know, every two and a half minutes was another cartridge that you'd have to throw in there. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's uh, technology's come a long way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you kind of went to the film school of doing rather than, uh, you know, going to a formal film school. So you were kind of learning by hard knocks as you went through things. Sure. When you're a teenager doing that, obviously you had pretty early on your eyes set on making movies. Uh, mm-hmm as I said, Paramount Studios, you came up with that at age 13, if if that's correct. That's correct. Um, Okay, so first off, what's it like to know what you wanna do with your life at that young of an age?
0: Uh, You know, I guess back at that point, you don't really know anything, Um, but I do remember that I enjoyed filmmaking. I enjoyed film watching. Uh, When I was given a Super 8 camera by my parents for Christmas, I think when I turned 13, I would go out and just shoot anything, you know, oh, a glass of water, yeah, that's great. Um, and I you know, started doing these little five, 10 minute shorts and put little stories together and uh, really enjoyed it. And then we, we'd show them in my school. You know, I mean, we'd actually uh, get permission from some of the teachers to run these little crazy movies. And I remember after I did my very first one, uh, which was a vampire film, oddly enough. Okay. and. Uh, I did the second one maybe several months later. As soon as we premiered it in theater in the school, uh, when it said Pyramount Picture, everybody started applauding, which is one thing I'll never forget. That's it's like, it. oh, Pyramount is back! Loud, but <laughs> uh, and there were nobody else. Uh, well, actually, there was one other friend of mine that was doing it too, and sometimes we would work in each other's projects back then. Mm-hmm. But um, but that was it. There weren't a lot of people doing these crazy things. You know, they were. They were more into sports, or you know, things right. that I didn't really have time for or interest in.
1: So, what was that first, that vampire film, that first one you made? What was the plot of that?
0: A uh, very simple plot, I ran about ten minutes. It was called "Death of a Vampire," and it basically was uh, a, a vampire was attacking you know, kids, mm-hmm. um, and one guy decides to go to the vampire's house because he knows where he lives and drive a stake in him. And he does, but before he does that, he gets bitten and then he becomes a vampire and then he calls on one of his friends saying, oh, I think I'm turning into a vampire. And then the friend comes over, basically they get into a struggle, kills him, end of story, <laughs> <You> know, <Okay. laughs> not the most complicated thing, but uh, yeah, we, you know, we had a good time and we actually had a plastic skull that uh, you know, once the vampire dissolves away, poof, we put the little skull head there and uh, yeah, but uh, we didn't have a lot of actors in it. I think there were about three total. And, you know, we would shoot for maybe 20 minutes. And then the next day we would shoot another 20 minutes until we finally finished the film.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before before you started making these movies, you were into James Bond. Were you also into horror? Were you like watching Hammer films a like million dollar movie out of New I, York? Stuff yeah, like that?
0: I, I was really impressed by horror comedies, which there weren't a lot of. Uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was probably my, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's how I was introduced to Frankenstein and Cyan Abbott and Costello. And I thought, wow, you know, this is a horror film, but it's also a comedy. Very cool. Then years later, um, what was it? Uh, Fearless Vampire Killers, the Roman Polanski film, yeah. which I'm one of the rare people that really prefer the American cut of it, which you can't find anywhere now. Right. But um, I love the concept again—horror comedy—and and that actually was the inspiration for my film Polish Vampire, um, mainly because it was, you know, like I say, it was a kind of a horror comedy. And even the the composer who did the music for the film, I told him I wanted to have a lot of vocals in the music, like Whoa! which is from Polish—I mean, from uh, Fearless Vampire Killers—they right. did the same thing, so. So yeah, I, I kind of liked the horror comedy genre. I mean, I, I enjoyed straight comedies as well. Uh, you know, I was a big fan of early Woody Allen films, Mel Brooks films, things like that. So I'd say all of them combined sort of became what I became interested in, in doing and watching sort of thing.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Fred Ray, when we talked to him, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was the first touchstone for him with horror. For me as a kid, my dad showed me that one and that was my first time seeing Frankenstein, Dracula and all this. To the point when I saw Dracula finally, I'm like, this is a really boring movie. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So when you come up, you start making these movies. At what point did you make the decision? Well, first off, I have to ask, I read this uh, in a couple different places. I wanna know if it's true. Did you almost get kicked out of high school for trying to shoot a sex scene with your friends? (laughs) I
0: wouldn't say kicked out. Uh, It did cause a little controversy. Um, I had an art teacher that was very supportive of my filmmaking. And uh, so every time I would make a movie, he would allow me to run it you know, for the classes. And he, this one actually went kind of sight unseen. He, uh, he didn't see the film before he ran it and, and it was being a James Bond film and he had a kind of a simulated uh, moment of sex. Um, there wasn't a lot of, uh, I mean, you didn't see anything. Sure. But the very fact that it was simulated caused a little bit of controversy and uh, yeah, there was, a, there was a discussion about that with some of the teachers. Uh, how could you do this? And I was basically going, look, you don't see anything more in this movie that you'd see in a regular movie, in a Bond movie, you know? I mean, we, sh- we shot the girls from the back. It was obvious that she was topless though. So, you know, when right. you're in a high school, 14, 15, you don't do stuff like that, <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, I wouldn't say kicked out, but I would say that it did cause a little bit of a stir at that time.
1: I love that. When I read it, I just was like, boy, I hope this is true. (laughs) (laughs) Not true enough. So, at some point, then you decide, I'm going to, I've got to go hit Hollywood. I got to see if I can make it out there. What made you make that decision?
0: Well, when I graduated, uh, there was, my parents were moving to Florida. I had no desire to go there. So, I had a sister that lived out in California. So I arranged to move in with her for a couple of months just to get settled in. Um, You know, and of course, you're 18, you come out to a new place and you think that it's going to be like, oh, they're going to see me and go, wow, that looks like a filmmaker. Let's hire them. Well, obviously, that isn't the case. So I got a bunch of little odd jobs and then ultimately uh, got a job at Universal Studios as a park attendant, uh, you know, cleaning up the crap that people throw on the ground. Then uh, from there, I became a tour guide. And really loved the job because you get to hang on the lower lot, you get to see the sets, you get to watch filming once in a while. So I really enjoyed that met a lot of friends that were also into film. Well, they were more into acting and such. Mm -hmm. And then as I, uh, after I think a few years of this, I realized, well, this isn't really an end to anything. I mean, uh, there's, you're you're a tour guide, you're not a filmmaker. And I thought, okay, I think I'd been out here for five years and not having done a thing That's when I decided, you know, I'm just going to go out and buy another Super 8 outfit, uh, camera, projector, editor, the whole thing, and just start making movies again. So I I did a 20-minute film called Buns, which was uh, about a hamburger killer, and uh, that one uh, starred a bunch of friends of mine that were also tour guides at Universal, Um, After that one, I thought, let's try and do a a James Bond parody because I did two of them back in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we did that. We had a high speed skateboard chase down the streets of Las Vegas. uh, Great, great. I love that scene. Oh, you actually saw that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So and then we had, uh, you know, my uh, friend that did uh, a friend that was getting into titles and visual effects. He did a James Bond title sequence with, you know, topless girls cavorting around. So um it was they to me
1: that, they shot that in your house right oh yeah yeah most yeah. of that was
0: shot in my yeah. house actually we shot it through glass where we would uh yeah. we would project the titles on glass and then have these silhouettes of the girls behind it doing bondi and like things right so at that time you know that oh, this is the best accomplishment i could never do anything better than this and and we got into some festivals and then we uh, we had a show at the new art theater in west l.a where we convinced the owner of the theater to let us have a bunch of super eight movies at the theater promoted as a regular movie night. Um, and the place just filled up and we were shocked that, uh, that, there was a standing room line. We ended up having to have a second emergency show that same night to accommodate all the people that showed up because there'd never been anything like this before. You know, they're really so they
1: brought in, they brought in super eight projectors for that we did. Yeah, it was okay, my friend, okay.
0: myself, and Craig Bassick, who was a DP on a bunch of my films. Yeah. Uh, he was also a filmmaker himself. And we thought, you know, let's see if we can just promote these movies like a regular show. So we, we contacted some other Super 8 filmmakers and asked if they had some films they wanted to put in. Uh, we put together like a two and a half hour show consisting of my film, Craig's film. In fact, one of the films was from Frank Darabont, who directed Shawshank Redemption. he did a short film called the Maltese mystery which was kind of a Humphrey Bogart parody ran about 10-15 minutes that was in the show too and um like I say we had so many people there it was shocking to all of us that it it sold out so well but the LA Times did an article on it you know we got a little bit of press that way and we thought wow you know there there are a lot of would-be filmmakers or people that are interested that got uh involved in this or wanted to come to this thing and we we did another one later on another show and that's when I said, you know, I'm gonna try and do a feature. Uh, you know, what's the difference between doing a short film and a feature? It takes a little more time, a little more effort, a little more commitment, but uh, that's when I started. It was originally called Virgin Vampire. Right. Uh, and then, you know, once we got underway on, on that film, it took us two years to make, right. but uh, we never expected it to sell. It was supposed to be just another showcase film, but once it was done, and we picked up a um, like a marketer that said, you know what? Let's not tell anybody the budget anymore, or or the format. I'm going to push this as a regular movie.
1: Mm-hmm. And to
0: everybody's surprise, he got it out there. He sold it to home video, mm-hmm. uh, sold it to USA Network. USA you know,
1: Network, yeah, that was a biggie.
0: Yeah, and yeah. USA Network had no idea that they were buying a two thousand dollar movie. I mean, they they thought it was sixteen millimeter. Or at the very least, you know, a hundred thousand dollar budget or something. And then right. when they found out they weren't really that happy about it. Um, because I think what happened was, and I don't I don't know if this is entirely true, but I, I believe there's no reason why it wouldn't be. Every Super Eight filmmaker contacted USA Network saying, You're buying Super Eight? I got one, you know, and it was like, stop it, just go away. So um,
1: so yeah, so that was that was the plight of that
0: film and how it did.
1: So that was for our listeners, uh the Spy Who Did It Better was the spy movie that went into that Super 8 Festival. So you right. would kind, of, kind of built this network up of other Super 8 filmmakers who were out there. Um, right. And I know that's, uh, it, it's interesting, the number of people, Sam Raimi, of course, famously started out with Super 8. They actually tried to shoot Evil Dead in that. And then when they blew it up to 35, of course, <laughs> just big yeah. blocks on the screen. Exactly. Uh, but you guys kept it in Super 8. You sold it as Super 8. And um, we're bringing in your projectors to be able to show it as that. So as you started building this network, um, it's it's obvious as you go through your films, you've kind of got a a cast of repertory players that you could call on and then bring in other people on top of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also in the background, you had a lot of the same people working on it. Um, And as we get in here to Polish Vampire uh the the little documentary that you guys did as the supplemental the behind the fangs documentary is a great little doc um and all the people uh who were working for you your dp um, a lot of your pas and stuff talking about how uh, you know we're here to make a movie that's that's why we're here let's make the movie taking it very seriously but still having fun obviously with what you were doing <laughs> um so when you're shooting like that over a year and a half and I waited to watch that until after I'd watched it again it's a movie I'd seen you know I was in college smoking weed and watching it on USA loving it um but I hadn't seen it in a few years so when I watched it again then I watched the doc with it and um it shocked me to hear how long it took to shoot I thought it would be like you know we had a week and we shot this thing the Mm -hmm. continuity for it is why I was so surprised like that everybody's hair is staying the same from scene to scene. Um, a lot of the same costumes are showing up and stuff like that. So when you're shooting over that span of time, how much of a nightmare is that?
0: Well, there were issues with hair. You mentioned it. In fact, uh, there was a scene in the film that probably got right by you with Lori Sutton is going down the stairs to um, Dupa's bedroom towards the end of the film to return his shoe mm-hmm. uh, her hair going down the stairs and when she's in Dupa's bedroom completely different uh, her hair is so you know, frizzy fluffier or whatever and huh. uh, you know but again it's not there's something a you're of, really...
1: there's a lot of close-ups in that so maybe I maybe that's why I'm, but yeah okay yeah you see it again you'll notice
0: that when she's walking down the stairs her hair completely changes to when okay. she's in the room to live for two different locations two different places two different times uh, in fact, when we uh, when we wrote the movie, we were supposed to get permission to shoot uh, up at Universal. They had a thing called Castle Dracula that used to be for the tour, right. yeah. and I knew some people up there. And initially, they said, "Yeah, you know, you could you can go up and use it." And then, as we were getting closer to making the movie, they started saying, "No, you can't." And it was like, "Well, you know, we're writing this movie around this castle set and." anyway so we ended up building our own little castle set in a garage which was dupa's bedroom but we would sneak in to universal and shoot the establishing shots of them going down the steps or you know that was done at universal's castle dracula uh on the on the sly i knew people that worked there that kind of let us get in and get those little shots and we we could only do it like between shows you know they would do a show show's done we'd go in get our actors walking down the stairs or going into a room and then okay show time again we get out. um yeah we did so many things on that film where uh, you know we didn't know anything about permits or legalities or anything like that we we shot at a theater in glendale uh where we needed to have the marquee changed to enema vampires mm-hmm. and we asked the guy we knew the guy that owned or that ran the theater and he did it he let us do it But as we were shooting it, a cop shows up and says, "You guys have a permit for this?" And we're like, "Well, no, but we have permission from the theater owner." That doesn't matter. You're filming on the street. You need a permit. Well, can we finish what we're doing? No, you have to leave. Uh, When I come back, if you're still here, I'm going to impound the camera, take you to jail. Wow. Mm -hmm. How how much long do we have before you come back? (laughs) Anyway, we so we had to break up, and and then the next week, actually, I I spoke to a friend of mine who happened to be a lawyer and also a publicist. And he said, you know what, go back out there. Here's my phone number. You got it. Call me if they give you any hassle. I'll make it worth your while. Mm-hmm. You get publicity out of this. Anyway, we went back the next week. Nobody nobody bothered us, you know right? Whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and then we did, there's a scene where Dupa's running home uh, before the sun comes up. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a car that swirls in the middle of the road and almost hits him. There's another car that swerves and hits a bunch of trash cans or whatever. Um, we shot that around the corner from a friend's house where we had the garage set and we staged the stunt and then we'd run and hide in the garage to make sure that nobody came out and nobody <laughs> showed up or whatever. and it was like oh, okay let's try and do it again you know right so that a couple of times I mean it's almost like I got my first taste of what it feels like to be an outlaw filmmaker right. you know doing things without official permission or whatever right yeah. it's so
1: much easier to ask for forgiveness anyway so. Exactly. And,
0: and we rarely got into trouble. I mean, Nudist Colony of the Dead, we had a guy from a helicopter. Uh, no permits, you know, didn't know. <laughs> uh, we had The, uh, the, the helicopter pilot was a friend of a friend of a friend, I think. And he let us do it as long as the helicopter never left the airport and only went up about 20 feet. Right. Didn't charge us for anything, but I think the gas. So you know, you try to get favors. You try to get people to you know get behind you and help you out. And uh, now see, it was a lot easier when you're in your twenties. Doing it now, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you know, now it's sort of like if you ever get caught doing something wrong, it's like, come on, you're a senior citizen, you know better. <laughs> but you know, I guess uh, we officially never grow up, right?
1: Right. I mean, that's that's why you make movies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when you, I, I. I knew that about the Dracula's castle part. And then so Steve Drosh, you guys have been using his house for a lot of the, the exterior shots, and then you Dorsch. ended up with his. I'm sorry, yeah, doors. Did Dorsch. I say it wrong? Dorish. A- okay. A- um, and so you used his garage for that interior of the castle. You built the right. set in there for that. Um, the the spotlights that you used for the candlelight, that mm-hmm. just just those little Ingenious little tricks that, that you were using to be able to make it give it the look and the feel you wanted. Mm-hmm. Um you were just making those up on the fly, coming up with what would work for that?
0: Well, basically, um I had met another filmmaker around the time of Spy Who Did It Better, name's Craig Bastic, and he was also making super eight films, but his films had a nice sort of moody look to them, you know. Uh they weren't just put a light here, put a light there. I mean, he, he put a lot of thought into his films. So I suggested to him that we team up for this film. So he became the DP on wolf Vampire*, and it was really his eye that gave the film the golden glow and certain things. And yeah. you know, his idea to put the little uh, focus spotlights on the candles and, and things like that. And uh, <clears throat> oddly enough, I'm still working with him today. He's, uh, you know, he's doing some of the effects for *The Deceased Won't Desist*. He uh, worked on *Rage of Innocence* with us. So you know, he, we we go back a long way and. He's got a great, uh, you know, great cinematic eye. He's good with visual effects now, too. He's doing mm-hmm. some of the effects for this film. Um, okay. But yeah, Polish had a, a definite look to it that, uh, you know, it doesn't come around that often.
1: No, and, and the, the dream sequence, the black and white dream sequence is, is inspired. It's a beautiful moment. Uh, you know, it's the silly film. It's a lot of fun. It's very silly. There's a lot of broad comedy. And then all of a sudden there's this moment that comes out of nowhere. And it's very, it's a lot of Todd Browning obviously influenced it, the, the light on the eyes and things like that. Um, it, 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 gives it, a, it gives it heart that you don't usually see in movies like that. And I thought it was a great little moment. Was that your intention with it or were you just wanting to make an homage?
0: Uh, you know, I don't even know really what the intent was. I just wanted it to look cool. And we actually shot it in the lobby of the Egyptian theater in Hollywood, which is where I used to work. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another one of my part-time jobs. I worked right. at the Egyptian theater and, and the assistant manager and I were pretty good friends and I needed this big wide open space. In fact, you'll see a couple of shots in it where uh, Laurie Sutton is standing next to like a, a griffin, you know, uh, yeah. you know that's, that was in the Egyptian theater, you know, so we used it. Uh, when we were there, though, my biggest concern, because we were shooting it in the middle of the night, Without the official manager's permission, we got the assistant manager to help us out, but the manager would have killed us if he knew we were doing it. So we're here in the middle of the night in the Egyptian theater lobby, filling it with smoke machines and a little bit. And my concern was someone's gonna be driving by on Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> see the smoke in the Egyptian theater lobby and call the fire department. That didn't happen, but that was a worry that we had when we shot it. And then also there's a scene where they're in a movie theater watching a movie uh, that was shot in the, um, in the uh, auditorium of the Egyptian right. theater, because they had mm-hmm. they had uh, three theaters there at the Egyptian at the time, Egyptian yeah. one, two, and three, and we shot it in the back there, again, without getting their official permission. But I, I used to tell other filmmakers that when you write a movie, write in what you have access to. You know, we had access to yeah. a theater. I thought we had access to a castle, you know, all these different things and it makes the filming process go a little smoother if you know you've got access to certain things.
1: The usher in that scene, um, he's a projectionist. Was he a projectionist at the Egyptian?
0: Not at the Egyptian at that time. He was a projectionist, I think, at the Fallbrook Cinema here, um, okay. but okay. He, uh, he was also in The Spy Who Did It Better. That's how I met That's him. Alfie
1: Pearl, right?
0: Alfie, yeah. We, no, we, we he did Back in 1979, when we did the Spy Who Did It Better, there weren't a lot of bald guys. And I mean, completely bald guys. Uh, and, and he was the only person I knew that had a completely bald head. Well, so I we figured Blofeld, you know, we'll make him the, the bad guy, cutting <laughs> the, the cat. <clears throat> and and it's just coincidentally, he happened to live in the same apartment building that my star, John McCafferty lived in. So we used him there. Then when we did uh, Polish Vampire, um you know i put him in there as the theater rusher because again friend and i knew i could depend on him stuck him in again curse of the queer wolf he was in and um he passed away i think around 2007 but i, yeah, I used him in three films um and pretty much like i say you know an ensemble group of people we used a guy named jim bruce who yeah. was in practically every movie i made until he died in 1998 and he worked at universal as sort of like a like a courtesy captain he'd be the guy that would uh, welcome people to the tour and that sort of mm-hmm. thing so um so yeah it, it was like a family it still is for the ones that are still around
1: yeah i get that feel um uh, in the documentary i watched and in a lot of your interviews that i found and uh, i found some interviews also with uh like john McCafferty and people like that and you get that feeling of <laughs> it's you, you just call them and say hey I'm, I'm making a movie and they go i'll be there yeah pretty much that's fantastic. I love that. That's a very <laughs> great thing to have. In fact, um,
0: and it's still to this day, we would get a lot of times where people that weren't even expected to be there would show up just to kind of hang around and help out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's people that, when we did Rektuma, we had a couple of Japanese girls that played like the little fairies from Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And there was one that would show up just to hold the slate and help us out. And yeah, because, I, I, you know, these movies are more like, parties really you know there's no pressure there's no time restraints we you know we get our shots and then we relax for a while and you and, you know we don't shoot every single day right. um so we might shoot a day here and a day there take a break for a week go back and shoot again and uh, i've only had a couple of times where actors have flaked on me and not as many as you think
1: yeah yeah there's a there's a pretty famous one we can get to that in a minute I, you talked about it ad nauseum i don't want to make you talk about stuff you've talked about a hundred <laughs> times right. so um, we, we did, we talked to Bill Rubain, the filmmaker out of Wisconsin, uh, made Giant Spider Invasion and, uh, Blood Harvest, some other movies like that. And he kind of had the same thing where it's, he's, he's got his, his core players, the people he can count on his workhorses who are going to come in do the job. And then, um, you know, he'd get a little money to bring in somebody that had a little bit of a bigger name, a little more star power and things like that. You, on the other hand, kind of, you have your core players and, if you brought somebody in, I always got the feeling you were bringing in people you were fans of, like Forrest Ackerman, who started showing up in your (laughs) films after that. Um, How did you come across meeting him? Well, and and in fact, actually, I should back up. You had Conrad Brooks in Polish Vampire.
0: I actually met Forrest through Conrad. Um, Okay. I had, uh, I think, let's see, a bunch of us went to an Ed Wood film festival back Mm -hmm. in the day. Uh, And this is really before anybody knew who Ed Wood was. Yeah. And, as we were leaving the theater, there were a bunch of people in the back row talking about how much fun it was to make these movies and all that. And I said, hey, were you in these movies? Oh yeah. Paul was there? Was uh, Carl
1: Anthony there? Paul Marco. Who? Carl Anthony. Was he there as well?
0: I don't know. I know Paul Marco was there. Uh-huh. Uh, Conrad was there. I believe Myla Neuthori was there. Vampira. Yeah. She would have been around.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think.
0: Gregory Walcott might have been there, too, because I know I'd seen him in a different situation or a different time. I'm <clears throat> not sure if he was there that night. But anyway, so as we're leaving the theater and we hear them talking, um, they're going back to their cars and we're behind them and we're talking and they're talking. And finally, I think it was I said to Conrad, do you act anymore? He goes, nah, I haven't been in a movie since, you know, the 60s. I said, well, you know, I'm starting a movie. Uh, it's low budget Edward type a movie. Uh, would you like to do a, a small part and he goes yeah i'd love to so he gave me his information um mm-hmm. and we brought him in as a bartender for one quick scene right you know. um but then after the movie was done uh, i guess he came to the premiere of it and he said you know who i'd like to show this movie to is forrest ackerman oh you know Forrest ackerman wow okay so we arranged a time to go up to ackerman's house and he watched it on our little you know on his little television on video And I think I recall him falling asleep now and then while we were running it. Um, But anyway, uh, flash forward a couple of years, when I was getting ready to do Curse of the Queer Wolf, Mm -hmm. I said, um, would you like to do a cameo? And he goes, oh, I've done 150 cameos in movies. And, you know, yeah, I'd love to do it. He goes, uh, he had a joke or something where he used to say, um, I'm not Vincent Price. I'm Vincent Half Price or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So we um, we stuck him in Curse of the Queer Wolf. And it was great, you know, he, he did it for no pay. And then um, uh, a couple of years later, we put him in Nudis Colony of the Dead as the judge. Judge and Reinhold, right? Reinhold. And I think he did get, it. I think there was a little bit of a budget to pay him like $100 or something like that. So um, yeah, and I think I was gonna use him in Buford's Beach Bunnies, which is my renegade film. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually said, no, this isn't really the kind of film that I uh, noted for. And you know, kind of a sex romp, you know. so. Right. We didn't use him in that, and then I wrote a movie called My Mom's a Werewolf, which he was also used as a cameo. Completely wasted in the scene because the director, I guess, had no idea who he was and didn't really utilize him to his fullest. But, uh,
1: but yeah, that was uh, that was my
0: performance situation. And 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 Conrad, I used him in I think three movies, mm-hmm. uh, and then he ended up moving back east before he died. So um, yeah, you make friends with people and it almost like they're not working for you they're basically there to help same thing with judy tenuta we became friends right. and uh we you know i did some short videos for her just for her shows yeah and, um and then you know she said yeah i would be happy to do a little cameo in your film so i put her in the uh, celluloid soul mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah and i think there was uh, maybe one or two other semi-celebrities eddie deason mm-hmm. of course uh when we did polish vampire he was going to star in the film as you probably right. know. and then um it was going to be his the first film that he ever actually starred in because he'd always yeah. been a, a character in some of the other films. Mm-hmm. But then after a month or so of this, he realized, you know, where's my dressing room? Where's my limousine? You know? So I think he kind of got a little disenchanted with this particular project and, and bailed out. And, and the only other celebrity, I think um, Eric Douglas, Kirk Douglas's youngest son was in the spy who did it better as a cameo. Right. And that was mainly because we were tour guides together. And Mm -hmm. uh, so he was trying to be an actor. And, you know, I think that's the extent of my Jim Hanks. Oh, yeah, Yeah, I forgot about Jim Hanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when we were doing uh, Buford's Beach Bunnies and he came in not telling me that he was Tom Hanks brother. And I remember throughout the entire meeting, I kept joking about how you should get a job as Tom Hanks double. I like, go, you look so much like him. And he kind of ignored that. And then um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, well, then after he left, the casting director had told me that, yeah, that's Tom Hanks' brother. It's like, oh, geez. That's how you'd said
1: in an interview he was kind of sensitive about that at the time.
0: He didn't want to be known for Tom Hanks' brother. He wanted to be sure. his own person. So sure. he came in to the audition under a different name. And uh, respect. What's that? Yeah. And. I, and, and I remember a scene once we hired him. And we were filming by um, Santa Monica Pier, or Venice. We were shooting on Venice Beach, and he uh, disappeared for a while. Couldn't find him, and we found him later on in a store. And I said, "You know, Tom, you or you know, Jim, you can't just walk away. Where'd you, where'd you go?" He goes, "You know, the only thing is, whenever I'm by a camera, a crowd shows up, and they think I'm Tom, and oh, wow. that kind of bothered him." So. I think he's come to terms with it. And I know that Tom has helped him out on a couple of projects. So He's doing
1: a lot of, like he does Tom's voice for video games, for Toy Story yeah, and right. stuff like that now. Yeah. So I think so, he's finally, finally so come to he, terms with it.
0: He's come to peace with it. But yeah, at that time, he wanted to be his own person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the irony is, is that I actually hired him because I knew he, I found out he was Tom Hanks' brother. Uh, oh, what a perk. Tom Hanks' brother, sure. Sure. And, sure. The exact reason he didn't want to be hired for, but... Uh, yeah. You know these things. You do what you need to do, and I, in fact, the big poster that they put up was, uh, you know, Tom Hanks. You've to be- <laughs> big Hanks, little Tom.
1: Well, I, I want to go back a little bit on Polish Vampire and talk about um, when you're doing Super Eight, you're not capturing sound, so you're having to ADR all of that, and you did a lot of the voices on that, um, and I. I a good segue to this, you just did a little imitation of Eddie Deeson a minute ago. His, the voice you do for him in that, were you were you kind of taking a little dig because he dropped out? Because it's, it's a almost a parody of his voice.
0: No, I was trying to do his voice. Okay. I, uh, actually what, what happened was we would record live sound, but it was very rarely usable because the camera made so much noise. So we would use the live sound as a reference track and then we Got would read of it, re-dub it you know, with, with the actors. When I did Deason, I literally tried to do an impression of him and there's some people that actually thought it was his voice. So oh, wow. uh, there were others that said no, you know, but, and, and I think there's a couple of shots where we do actually use his real voice, even though it was taken from the original soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else was me just trying to parody it and not parody, <laughs> but trying to duplicate it. Right. Uh, and the same thing with, uh, I think there's a couple of other actors I dubbed over. I think I dubbed over Conrad Brooks in uh, Queer Wolf because he couldn't get the hang of the looping process. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, you know, they would hear the original dialogue and then immediately they would repeat it into a mic. And if they heard it and repeated it and heard it and repeated, theoretically we would get a kind of a ballpark sound that we could mix in. Mm -hmm. Conrad just couldn't get it uh, completely out of sync and he couldn't get the dialogue. So I ended up dubbing his voice doing a sort of a, I don't know, I don't remember it was Walter Matthau sounding voice. <laughs> Beaver, Wally Beaver, I you know. But uh, other voices that I would do is just out of convenience because it was easier for sometimes me to do these voices than to try and bring in the actual actor. Um, if it was a principal, I would try to bring the original actor back, but sometimes the sure. time or, you know, scheduling wouldn't allow it. So we just wanted to move it along and get this thing done. Right.
1: When you're when you're shooting those and you're you're capturing, I mean, there's a lot of people don't understand how much goes into just getting a single take. And when you're shooting on the fly like that and you don't have your permits and you're starting to figure out, oh, we got to get this done quickly, we got to get out, we got to run and gun this. As a newer filmmaker, and you're trying to to let's say knock out a scene in Grauman's Chinese lobby and you've got your crew there they're all dedicated you've got your actors there, all dedicated you're knocking these things out is it is it so stressful or were you able because you were so fresh at this was it was it a little more oh, okay that was a good take let's go do this again or were you really trying to rush these through
0: well We were trying to get through it, but no, there was never any stress because there really was never any expense to worry about. Time is not money on our film. So, you know, we would go there, shoot, try to shoot very few hours because the longer uh, you're there, the more people tend to get tired, bored, cranky, whatever. If we went to a location that we couldn't get again or we knew we had to get out, like when we did, there was a bar scene in uh, Polish Vampire, Uh, Where we shot at a friend who had a bar, he allowed us to use it. So we were there in the middle of the night. We would go in after they closed, film till like four in the morning or something. And you know, extras would get tired, and some would just bail and leave. Whatever. We would do what we had to do, but we always made it work out. If Mm -hmm. if things were getting a little too tense or whatever, we'd say, you know, okay, let's wrap. Uh, you know, we'll come back next time. Sometimes we could do that, sometimes we couldn't. If we couldn't get a location again, then it would be, come on guys, we have to do this until we're done with the scene, get everything right. we need. But uh, no, I don't think there was ever any really stress on the thing. Cause I would always say, this is not brain surgery. You know, we're not spending millions of dollars. Um, let's just have a good time doing it. And that's why I think we get the same people to keep coming back movie after movie because they know it's a non-stress situation. It's really easy to do and fun. And, and hopefully by the time it's done, they've got something they can show and maybe get other work as a result of it.
1: You know? That was kind of my motive behind that question because I, I, if it was stressful, I was going to ask, how do you get them to come back?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, I, I, I know a filmmaker who is kind of a dick and he's used a few people in a film that uh, will never work for him again. And he even had a little bit of a budget, you know, I think it was like $200,000. But instead of being an easygoing filmmaker, he tried to be James Cameron. You know, he was like being the boss, that, playing the part of producer. And right. one time I said, you know, because he used to downplay what I do. Well, I did a real movie, you know, I actually had a budget, I paid my actors and all that. Right. And I just said, well, let me ask you a question. How many of those actors would come back to work on another film with you? Not a one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, and I've got actors I've worked with for over 40 years that are still... Right coming back so a lot of it is is just you know don't be a bitch about it or don't <laughs> be a bastard about it you know enjoy yourself happy i want people to walk away saying they had a great time and you know that they're proud of what they did and
1: you know that's more important
0: to me than anything
1: yeah i yeah. It, it shows i mean you're like i've already said it but your movies they're they're playful they're fun and right. you can tell that the cast is having fun doing them as, oh, they're, sure. as they're getting into it. So that's, that's great. I love, I love hearing stories like that from a movie set. Mm-hmm. So you you get that done, you put it out there. How soon did that sell? Uh, let me
0: think. I think it was within a year or two. Wow. I remember now. Um, when it was done, which was technically it was done in 84, I think we sold in 85. I found a marketer. A guy who said, You know, I, I saw a poster or a promotional piece for your film because I got to tell you, it made my day. I, a vampire film in a different vein. You know, he, he liked all the catchphrases and stuff. And he said, I'm going to take this to Cannes. Uh, I'm going to Cannes. I've got a slew of movies that I'm promoting. I want to take yours as well. Okay, yeah. fine. So he took it up there and he made a sale, a home video sale to a company at the time. It was called Scimitar. Um, they put out something like 11,000 copies on VHS put it in all the stores. It was in tower video and all the major video stores. In fact, we, uh, Craig Bassick and myself, my DP, we call up a lot of these video stores saying, uh, do you have Polish Vampire and Burbank? And uh, if they said no, so oh really Why don't you? Because I, I tried other video stores and they all said it's out right now, you know? So, um, you know, the stores we get, or we'd go, like if we knew that uh, Blockbuster would carry it or whatever video store would carry it, uh, we go in there and find it on the shelf and say, oh, I heard about this film, Polish Vampire in Burbank. Wow, yeah, I'm gonna rent this one, yeah. Then we put it back and wait and see if anybody else came and looked at it. We, in fact, there was a Ma and Pa video store in Burbank. We called up and said, asked if they had it. And they go, yeah, yeah, we have a couple copies of it. So we, we wanted to go visit that store. We said, wouldn't it be funny if there's like this standee, you know, Polish vampire? And we got there. There was a poster for the movie up on their wall. Awesome. Uh, one of the older posters of it, and it was like orgasming. You know, we couldn't believe because sure. we were joking about it, and there it is. So, yeah. So, it, and then it got a little bit of heat. You know, it got a little momentum going. Mm-hmm. Um, about a year or two later, another guy said, uh, "I have a connection with USA Network. I'd like to present it to them." okay, fine. And sure enough, he got it on USA Network for two years. And again, we were all stunned by it because this was never made as a movie that we thought we could do anything with. It was super great. Home video was brand new. There wasn't a lot of uh, home movie or movies made for the home video market. So we kind of came in at a good time. And then, uh, you know, USA Network, I don't know if they got it because of the strength of Polish vampire on uh, VHS, if they had heard about it or they saw it in the trades, I don't know what got them really interested in it, other than maybe this guy just pushing it as a small film that might do well for your up all night show or whatever. But yeah, uh,
1: yeah it was uh, it was uh, a lot
0: of it was just good luck and timing.
1: It was an interesting time with the video market coming out. I talked about this with Lloyd Kaufman, where you have um, studios shitting their pants because this new media comes out and they feel threatened by it, so they were they they just hoard everything. And or they would charge an astronomical amount a huge amount of money which is another way of saying no you can't have it so <laughs> yeah. and so, so yeah. people people who made independent films like you and like Troma and all these other little independent companies they started making bank off of that i think it's fantastic um did you feel that same thing happened as streaming started happening as well
0: well with streaming it's a, a whole different animal now you know i, I mean right i've got most of my movies on tubi and some mm-hmm. of them are on amazon prime and you know we'll get a check every couple of months for you know a few hundred whatever they say uh, or whatever they run uh i don't know how to really keep track of their numbers it's a little tougher to try and yeah. track these films but as a way to strictly get your films out into the world then yeah i mean uh, you know, anybody that's looking for my films can now find them pretty easily on any of these streaming platforms. Yeah. Whereas in the old days, you know, they'd have to go to a video store and see if it's there, you know, right. or they have to find some place that was running it. Um, you know, it, it, I, I find them pirated on YouTube every once in a while, uh, you know. Sure. So, but I was never into this to make money, believe it or not. That was never my intent. It was always because I love the filmmaking process. And I used to talk to filmmaking students or would be students in schools at UCLA and things like that. And some couldn't fathom, why would you make a movie without the intention of making money? And my response would usually be, do you like sex? Do you get paid every time you have sex? Why would you do it if you uh, aren't getting money out of it? If you enjoy the process of what you're doing, then money isn't even an issue. Now, if you do get paid for sex, that's a bonus or if you get <laughs> if you get paid for making a movie that's a bonus you know right. but as far as that being your motivating factor there's nothing more deflating to a person's ego than to go to like the American film market when they're here in town <laughs> and look at every person walking around with a movie under their arm and a poster in their back pocket yep. um, you know the place stinks of despair and it really brings you back to reality that you've got a movie you got a movie everybody's got a movie um, and if you're going to get it out there into the world and you think you're gonna be the one that's gonna ever use the point to the Blair Witch project. That's the uh, poster child for independent films. Yeah. Well, that went through a lot of places before it got finally got a home at Artisan Entertainment. Okay. But even before then, it was, you know, it it was a luck. A lot of it was timing. The internet was kind of new. The whole yeah. reason they made it look like it was found footage, you know, that's what sold that movie. So absolutely. Uh, yeah, a friend of mine made a much superior movie called The Last Broadcast, which was basically bumped right. out, which was basically bumped out of Sundance because of uh, Blair Witch. And same concept though, found footage. You know, played yeah. it off like a real documentary. In fact, uh, Stefan, who made the film, I, um, I I didn't know him very well at the time, but he sent me a copy of the movie. And as I'm watching the movie, I'm going, I could have sworn he said this was a narrative, but I was believing that it was a documentary as I was watching it until the last five minutes of the movie. And then I, I contacted him and said, Yeah, you got me. You actually got yeah. me believing this was a real a thing. So and he got a little heat with that film too. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually he got it playing here and there. So you know it, it's sort of like sometimes it's just timing and luck. You know? Yeah. And you never really know what's gonna happen.
1: And it certainly it you can tell when a movie's made. Because the person likes making movies, or when a movie's made because the person wants to make money. There's a right. and it's a huge gap okay. uh, between the two, and especially in low-budget films, you can tell when they're really pushing to try and market this and make a dollar off of it. Where yeah. compared to what you do, I mean, Polish Vampire comes across as somebody who, who liked Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, who mm-hmm. wanted, who, who was inspired by some of those things that um, are, are touchstones, I think, with pop culture. Uh, that well, you know, I, I,
0: I forgot to mention uh, another influence of that was John Landis's film *American Werewolf in London*. Yeah, because that too was a horror comedy. And when I um, when Eddie Deason quit the movie, uh, I had to rewrite the story because there really was no skeleton in the original movie. There was no Deason. Right. Deason's character it was my character. And as I was going through the script, thinking, you know, wait a minute, American Werewolf has a dead friend that keeps coming back. Let's go with that. And that's why I changed the title because from Bur- Virgin Vampire to American Werewolf, I mean, to Polish Vampire in Burbank, right. it's almost like, look, you know, I'm, I'm letting you know right off the bat that this is kind of a homage to that film in its own way. Yeah. And that became how it you know evolved. But I remember when we were using Eddie Deason as the lead and we shot a few scenes with him as Dupa. Uh, I remember my girlfriend at the time said, I don't think I could sit through 90 minutes of this guy. <laughs> she thought... <laughs> You you know, we shot the scene with Judo for Jesus with him and we shot a a couple of other scenes with him. And so by him leaving the project might have made the movie a bit more charming, you know, because I think I play the character a lot more subdued and maybe even a little bit more sweeter than than he would have played it. Um, But that was only because I didn't want to go out and hire another actor and and have to worry about that actor leaving the project, too, because it could have been the end of the
1: project. It was it was definitely uh I, I get what she's saying he's so broad and you did play it much more low-key brought some heart to it um i cared about what you did with dupont more than i would have if Eddie and had been playing it i think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a it's a bob ross would call that a happy accident you know yeah, it, <laughs> would, it, would,
0: it would have been more jerry lewis like if he had Absolutely. been. and i think it would have been a sillier film um yeah. You know, so again, it may have been a blessing in disguise. Who knows how this thing would have turned out otherwise.
1: We're going to move on from it, but I had a couple quick questions. And these are just things that niggle at my brain. One was, I read that you actually, uh, you yourself, hand drew the bats on those pajamas. Is that true? That is true. Wow. Uh I
0: worked part-time at the Egyptian Theater, and while I was standing at the uh, ticket booth waiting for people to buy tickets, I would sit there with a magic marker and <laughs> drew these little bets. In fact, we put it up for auction a couple of times on eBay. But oh, never, wow. Yeah, a couple of times, and then uh, we had a, a, what do you call it, a reserve price on it. Uh-huh. And it never made the reserve price, so I said, I'll hang on to it, but I've, I've sold some props from some of my films through my
1: website. And such. Let me know if that goes up again. I might oh, really? <laughs> I'm I'm broke, but I might find a way. I got stuff I yeah. can sell. <laughs> I would love those. You're full of and blood, then, aren't you? What's that, Jason? I said, You're full of blood, aren't you? Yeah, full of blood. I could sell all the blood for him. And then um there's a moment in it, and it's one of those I remember laughing my weed addled head off in college when I watched it, where um Dupa's waiting in the shed and the cat starts scatting.
0: Right.
1: Is that just for the hell of it? Uh, well, he tells the
0: cat to scat, and the cat scat. Uh, it was it was just one of those silly moments that I I think that's a, a carryover from the Eddie Deason version of the movie because uh, the the first draft of the script was a lot more broader, a lot more uh, slapsticky, and yeah. that was just a carryover. I, I thought it was a funny moment and it's a great. Funny. It's a great
1: moment. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that that's and that's you, right? You're the one yeah, doing yeah, the yowling. Do do, yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. So you get that sold. Um, you're, you're now flush with cash. And your next movie comes out, and that's Death Row Game Show. And so four years have passed between making movies. There we go. Part one with Mark Pirro. What an interesting guy. Uh, my favorite type of filmmaker. Just run and gun, run and gun, get something done, get it out there. Had a lot of fun talking to him. Part two will be out in two weeks. Next week, there may be a very special episode. I'm not sure if I'm going to have it ready yet or not. But uh, if not, then it will be out soon. Hope you guys are enjoying getting out in this fall weather. I hope you all had a fantastic Halloween. I certainly did. When you're out and about, please take care of your servers. Because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we do not piss on hospitality. Alright kids, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Maybe next week. We'll see.